You think William James like showed up today? He'd be like, he'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. All I wanted was money, tools, uh, money, tools, God, and some good ass motherfucking art. This is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. It illuminates the face. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and buffed up with his retinue. All right, everybody, you're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pastelli, and I'm here with my producer, my wrangler, my technician, my audiologist, Sam. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, John. It's uh, it's good to be here with you. I was reading your your post on the John Pastelli WordPress blog this week, and you wrote about you wrote about William James's um Pragmatism, a new name for some old ways of thinking, which it was a series of lectures, right? Yeah. Six lectures? Something like that. Something like that, yeah. And they were from the 1900s, like 1906, 1907. I want to I wanna get into pragmatism um, and talk about what James wrote. I guess the first question is like it's a word – I mean it's a word that's used now. It's like that's oh, very pragmatic. It's a pragmatic thinker. You could kind of associate it with, oh, no bullshit, like results oriented, mm-hmm. adaptable. If this works, use it. Yeah. Um, if this works, it has a value. Yeah. Um, not caught up in theoretical, too much theoretical considerations, abstractions, um, inefficient emotions. Let's get her done. But what it, <laughs> what. It, in a very American, like a core American, yeah, um, very American, very philosophy. American. Not now. Let me just pose it simply: what what is pragmatism in Jamesian sense? Right. So the funny thing about all of those connotations of pragmatism, and they're there in William James. He talks again and again. He talks about cash and credit. He talks about the cash value of an idea and how much credit an idea allots you. And what's more American than this obsession with how much cash you have, how much credit you can get? Money, tools, uh, money. So there is that very American dimension to it. But he also wants to use it to defend faith, religious faith, to defend mysticism, to, and then later in his life was interested, as I think I mentioned earlier, in things like ghosts and psychic mediums. Um, spiritual experiences. Spiritual experiences. Because one of the things he says is, it's an interesting book, because early in the book he says, look, there's these two, he, this is very novelistic. He says, philosophy comes from two different temperaments. And one of them is rationalist, idealist. It's somebody that wants ideas to be exalted Wants to uh, wants to resist the mess, the muck, the murk, the filth, the mire of the practical world, and he's you know he's thinking of the rationalist tradition, whether it's Plato or Descartes or, or Hegel, each in their own way. And then on the other side, well, just on the rationalists for a second. Okay. Um, see that 
so I've been, you know, my, my personal theory is like, you, uh, you know, enough philosophy not to be bamboozled by philosophers. Yeah. Right? Good advice. Yeah. And don't read too much. Of that don't stuff. read too much, <laughs> but in another sense, it's fundamental. And with the rationalist thing, it was like, that can be hard to understand. We're like a rationalist philosopher because you think of the word rational and you can maybe associate it with like scientific or materialist or just like think rationally or yes. like this is a rational observer, but actually rationalism in the history of philosophy, it has more to do with like sort of abstract, like metaphysical. So things that aren't deduced from the empirical world, just induced from mind and yes. thoughts and ideas. And in like creating this effervescent, like, dome or like a lava lamp within your own brain where these things flutter around and grow in their own like potencies and with their like your little systemic fancies how they connect and don't connect and then you take that you take that abstracted system and you you impose it on the world yeah you you understand everything through that yes is that which is kind of fucking irrational you can be fucking irrational. <laughs> right. So, right. Let's clear the, 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 the word up because what it means in the history of philosophy is very different from what it means colloquially. In, in the history of philosophy, it means innate ideas and deductive logic. And what we use it to mean is we use it as a synonym for scientific mentality where it's the opposite. It's empiricism. So when he says rationalism, he means this idealist, deductive, uh, innate, you know, the, the forms, the, 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 the logic, the ideas. Yeah. Yeah. The perceptions. Yeah. And on the other side is the, the utilitarians, the empiricists, the positivists. And the basic idea there is induction. Everything comes from experience and you build the world out in thought from what you've induced from experience rather than what you've deduced from some innate logical idea. And deduce means like what you've, what you're projecting or imposing. Yeah. So deduce is when you start with a a premise that's, you know, um, it's like the arguments for God. It's like, well, um, uh, there must be, if everything is in motion, there must be a source of motion, but for the source of motion to be the source of motion, it must itself not be moved. And therefore there must be an unmoved mover, which we can call God. All of that takes place in a set of like logical, formal proofs in your mind mm-hmm. where each link in the chain of logic leads to the other. Mm-hmm. Whereas the empiricist mentality says, um, Hey, I see that, uh, the geese on this island have bigger bills than the geese on that island. Hong Kong. <laughs> Hong Kong. So there must be <laughs> there must be some selection pressures, you know. Then, then that's how you get Darwin. Yeah, and then Wittgenstein says, "Is this a geese or a, a rabbit?" <laughs> right. And then we're here now. I mean, but James was in between, and I didn't mean to bash on my rationalist <laughs> brethren. Like I'm with yeah. you. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not an. I'm an empiricist when I have to be, you know. And I'm inspired by, by rationalist philosophy, you know, to the extent I can understand it. Anyway, who cares about me? So James is setting this distinction 
between the rationalist temperament and the empiricist temperament. Yeah. And and the empiricist is willing to get dirty and the the rationalist isn't, essentially. Well, he comes up with this with this rather amusing um chart in pragmatism. Right. Let yeah. me just read this. He calls the the rationalists, remember this is like Plato and Hegel and Schelling and Spinoza. Mm-hmm. He says they're tender minded. So the rationalistic going by principles. They're intellectualist, idealistic, optimistic, religious, free willist, monistic, and dogmatical. Yeah. And he says the tough-minded, the empiricists, are going by facts. Sensationalistic, so like perceiving by the senses. Mm -hmm. Materialistic, pessimistic, irreligious, fatalistic, pluralistic, and skeptical. Yeah. The tender-minded and the tough-minded. Yeah. These are the different temperaments? These are the two philosophical temperaments, according to him. Okay. So why does he make this distinction? Of what use is it to him? What good? Well, <laughs> well I think in, on one, one thing is you can see what whoever said that uh, about the philosopher versus the novelist and the two brothers meant when she— It was a woman. Was it Elizabeth Hardwick, Rebecca West? I don't know. Somebody can look it up. But— Whoever said that James wrote philosophy like a novelist, you can see what she meant because he is brooding philosophy and character right there. So he is showing right there, that's his opening really pragmatist move is saying what kind of philosophy you adopt in the world is based on what kind of temperament you have. Um, And then the other thing is I think when you put it that way, because it sounds a little... Like um, almost like he's valorizing the the pra- the the because pragmatism will eventually try to reconcile these two. So it's it's superficially on the tough-minded side, but not fully. And when he says tough-minded and tender-minded, it feels like he's valorizing the tough-minded, as if to say the other people are whatever pansies or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but he's not, I don't think. I think what he wants to do is, I, I think he wants to say that philosophy is meant to accommodate the personality and is meant to accommodate your experience in he, the world. He almost positions the, the temperament and temperamentality as the most important factor in in an individual's beliefs. So, yeah. And it, that's, that seems to be, to me, to be new. And sort of emotional and novelistic, actually. Yeah. And like kind of a – it's almost like he's a spy for our side. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, it's funny because he comes from the – he comes to it from psychology. So he Mm -hmm. comes to philosophy from psychology. But psychology wasn't fully – yeah, psychology. The best way to study psychology is to study English literature. Yeah. I mean, unironically, yes. Yeah. So having established that, how do we get in – how does pragmatism – remedy that situation. So the way pragmatism remedies it, because early in the book, he says, look, yes, pragmatism is on the tough-minded side. It's um, it's empiricist. He'll later label it radical empiricism. It's positivist. It starts with experience. It starts with facts. It wrestles with the heat and dust of the world or whatever. Um, however, he says the problem is you can't just dismiss metaphysical questions as if they had no relevance to experience. 
And in fact, the only way to defend metaphysics is not through formal logical proofs, is not through some kind of syllogism that establishes its inner coherence, but in, in effect to defend what it is it does for us as human beings. So later in the book, he takes a series of metaphysical problems and says, if as pragmatists we're interested in the cash value of an idea, what its actual day-to-day -day worth is, what we find is it matters enormously if God exists or not. That's not mm. an idle question. That's not just some airy speculation because he's coming in, he's writing in the late 19th, early 20th century, and what's already been established by science is the theory of evolution, the laws of thermodynamics. So, you know, in Darwin, you get the idea that there's no ultimate telos to life. Everything is the product of just a set of chance adaptations. In physics and thermodynamics, you get the idea that um, due to just the various ways that that molecules move through the world, eventually the universe will suffer the entropic heat death and will just be a cooling wasteland. And he says, basically, he doesn't quite put it this way, but he says, well, if you accept all this, you'd probably kill yourself mm -hmm. uh, because there's no, there's no hope. There's mm -hmm. no ultimate hope. There's no meaning. There's no larger, there's no larger positive thing of which you're a part which begins to bear on what is good. Yeah, yeah. And he has a marvelous definition of good. He says, good is what, no, sorry. <laughs> he has, okay, let's back up. So there's two, in philosophy, they talk about the true and the good. And the good is ethical and the true is sort of epistemological and does that correspond to reality or not? Mm -hmm. And his definition of the true is what is good for you to believe. Oh, man. So if you... Wide open. Wide he open. He just broke it open. Yeah. And and, and, that's, and it gets to what he says, that the, his problem with rationalism is closed system. Yeah. And it's not action-oriented. Right. And effect-oriented. And suddenly, like, because, you know, what is good is always, is or you, you already know, and so you deduce it, and then you project it on the world. Right. Even if it doesn't work or if it's not actually good mm -hmm. in the world. He just broke, he says, that's a closed system. Pragmatism, we live in an open reality, an open universe. Pragmatism adjusts to that yeah, and measures its, its, its validity by the good that it produces. Right. Yeah, he says, I mean, the funny thing is, this actually is what Hegel says, I think. But, but he says God is eventually the thing we're going to make. You know, God, the world isn't finished yet. And what we do with our actions is we make it a better place piece by piece by piece. And we bring into reality this metaphysical hope that we feel that keeps us going. So God is the thing that we create, which really is actually, I think, uh, I True. mean, no, I think it's what Hegel says. that uh, Well, the best Hegelians are the Hegelians who don't know they're Hegelians. That's probably true. Yeah. And I don't know how much Hegel either you or I have read, Sam, so probably not enough. But <laughs> I've made people believe that I've read more than I have. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's an easy one to do that with. Right. Well, Because he's a rationalist. You it, just figure out his fucking point and then you just throw it over everything. Exactly. No, that's true. Someone, the, In fact, the same person who assigned me the ambassadors said, if it's not on one page of Hegel, it's on another. Yeah. Because he just sort of makes the same point. But this difference between being good and being true, I think, is pivotal. Yeah. Um, and they add, and he and he knows he knows the criticisms that are coming, and he has this nice passage about like 
The universe is a system of which the individual members may relax their anxieties occasionally. Mm-hmm. Like take a take a holiday. Yeah. Just relax. Yeah. Take it easy. <laughs> chill out. <laughs> Don't think about these dialectics. Yeah. Don't think about evolution. Don't think about the civil war. Yeah. Don't think about like these burgeoning cities of poverty and and despair. <laughs> Like you ever, like if you guys have been on the left, right? I don't know. Like you ever like got on a run with like, like Chomsky videos or just got on a streak with you just uncovering how horrible and unjust the world is. And, you know, you fall asleep to like these, these revolutionary critiques and everything becomes wicked and worthy of destruction and recreation. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's an intense pleasure that's true. And then you hear about Hegel and you hear about, you know, uh, uh, Bakunin and you hear about, uh, Gramsci and like, Oh, it's my job to, to acquire all these, all these rationalists and empiricists weapons, read the books, change the world. And your blood pressure keeps going up and up and up. William James is like, no, yeah. even if that, even if that pursuit of justice is true, that type, you gotta chill out. Like you gotta yeah. take a fucking holiday. Yeah, you gotta relax because that type of mentalities, bro. We just had a civil war. Pragmatists thought that traditional philosophy operated on the premise that the reason we have minds is to make accurate representations of the way things really are. That when we form beliefs about the world, our goal is to mirror reality, and so the test of the truthfulness of those beliefs is the accuracy with which we have mirrored the external world. So then philosophy traditionally becomes a business of answering the question, how can we know the world as it really is? Now the pragmatist answer to this question is to point out that nobody's ever made a problem about the relation between the hand and the world. Function of the hand is to help the organism cope with the environment. Situations in which a hand doesn't work, we try something else, like a foot or a fish or an editorial. Nobody worries in these situations about the lack of some fit about whether the physical world was or was not made to be manipulated by hands. They just use a hand where a hand will do. So pragmatists thought that minds are the same as hands, they're instruments for coping. An idea for them has no greater metaphysical stature than, say, a fork. When your fork proves inadequate to the task of eating soup, it makes little sense to argue about whether there's something inherent in the nature of forks or something inherent in the nature of soup that accounts for the failure you just reach for a spoon. Whoa. Believe in God. Well, so that takes us to, I read another book to go with my William James book, which was Lewis Manan's The Metaphysical Club. So... I read this because I keep making fun of Lewis Menand on grandhotelabyss.tumblr.com because I have contempt for his New Yorker articles. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote this book about American pragmatism that he, he covers James, but also Charles Sanders Peirce, John Dewey, and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a group biography, but it goes on all sorts of directions. It's really good, actually, despite my mockery of Lewis Menand. But that's his thesis, which is that um, it's the aftermath of the Civil War and one other context, which is the professionalization of academia and, the, and things like law and medicine. 
uh, because the professions hadn't fully consolidated themselves as professions, yet America was still kind of pre-modern before the Civil War. And he says, it's precisely the rejection of that moral fervor that leads to the Civil War that's Christian in inspiration, that's violent in result. And he talks about Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. He fought in the war. He was wounded three times. He never got over it. He said uh, he never had children because he said, this isn't the world I'd like to bring anyone else into. But he becomes the celebrated Supreme Court justice, the liberal jurist who has defended freedom of speech and also eugenics. We'll have to talk more about that. But um, And he says, yes, that moral fervor is what they were reacting against because to have a modern professional technological industrial industrial capitalist society, you can't be conditioned by moral fervor. You can't, and more dangerously, you can't be conditioned by moral fervor and then equipped by empirical, empirically generated technologies. Yes. In fact, there's a passage, you could tell Manan's book was written 20 years ago because now there's a pressure on mainstream writers to pay respect to left-wing arguments. But 20 years ago, we were still in the end of history the Berlin Wall had come down within the last decade, and you would just express contempt for left-wing yeah. ideas naturally. Um, or just regard their <laughs> impotence. Yeah, and so Menand has a digression on the Pullman-Porter strike and Eugene Debs and socialism, and he seems to think himself that this is too dangerous, that, this, that somebody like Eugene Debs, a radical leader, shutting down a country through a labor boycott, you know, a country can't really sustain that. Um, it wouldn't be what is good. It, apparently so not. So it's definitely not what is true. <laughs> right, right. Um, and Because the truth is a species of what is good, according to James. Yes. And it's not a category that exists like um, in a coordinate or side by side. It's It evolves. What is true evolves from what is good. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. When he talks about how Oliver Wendell Holmes's um, jurisprudence was conditioned by this belief that the law is just what people do, essentially. The law is just, the law sort of follows along behind culture, and you can't get too far behind or ahead of what people do. So Oliver Wendell Holmes ruled certain famous free speech decisions in a pro-free speech way if he thought the speech wasn't harmful, in an anti-free speech way if he thought it was. and not, So no principle. No principle. This is, right. Pragmatism is, does not, is not obedient to principles. Right, right. You unprincipled animal. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that led Oliver Wendell Holmes to follow his culture. So one of his, his most notorious decisions is the, uh, the pro-eugenics decision, Buck versus Bell of 1927 which has the famous conclusion. Um, so the case, I don't know to what extent he knew all the details of the case that came out later, but it was a woman who was committed by her family and, and was judged to be quote unquote incorrigible because she got pregnant out of wedlock, I think as a teenager. And it actually later turned out she was raped by her, a relative of hers. And they were just putting her away to hush up the family scandal. Kennedy style. Kennedy style, exactly. Um, and he sustained the judgment he said, yes, we can sterilize this incorrigible woman because, he says, practically, practically, people have to make sacrifices for the social good. And he, he compares 
eugenic sterilization to compulsory vaccination. He says the principle sustaining compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tube. Wow. So, I mean, I don't want to get, you know, Joe Rogan here, but like, you know, there's some troubling implications there. About how pragmatism enables a type of invasiveness because yeah. there's no principles. Because there's no principles. So we're getting into the cons. Did we cover some of the pros? Um, yeah, and I want to come back to some pros too. I'm going to come swing back to back pros because we're yeah. right. We could yeah. go into some cons right now. Yeah, I think there's some cons to pragmatism. Yeah. Oh boy. Because I mean, let's get back to the Civil War example. Okay. Um, so I, the thing about the Civil War, I don't want to do too much of a digression, but. It's become very fashionable on the left to talk about how great the Civil War was. And I think that comes out of like the writing Ta-Nehisi Coates was doing for the Atlantic around the anniversary of the Civil War 10 years ago. And I understand where it's coming from. I think there's good and bad motives for that. I think it's a dangerous precedent going forward. I don't think we want a new civil war. To center that historical event. To center that historical event, yeah. yeah. And I think... It, but one of the reasons people talk about how great the Civil War was is it became unfashionable to talk about how great World War II was because that had been used to justify so much of the war on terror stuff. The constant reference to Saddam Hussein was Hitler, Al-Qaeda were Nazis, and they wore that metaphor out. And I feel like liberalism almost went back and was like, okay, we need another good war. And my thing is, you don't have to have any hesitation about the justice of defeating the Confederacy or the Nazis to say that in the present state of things, we should keep our minds as open as possible to methods short of war of resolving these problems. So that's my qualm about the Civil War and the part it's playing in our discourse now. Mm -hmm. However, however, do you really want to go back and dismiss abolitionism is some misapplied case of moral fervor, mm. you know, even if you, even if you hesitate. And I, I understand Oliver Wendell Holmes went through the civil war. I have uh, older relatives who were in world war II and mm-hmm. suffered and didn't, they weren't in the mood to think about it as a good war. I understand the, 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 the horror of war, but is there a horror of abolitionism or to say it another way, could can you abolish an institution like slavery without moral fervor? And no, you need you need principles and you need a sort of universality built into constitutional understanding that withstands any any pragmatic um, opportunity or necessity or. Yeah. Sophistry. Yeah. You have to be able, in some cases, to say this is wrong and this is right, period. Well, James, you know, James has his response to that is, or that sort of challenge, and it could take a number of variations, but would would be, okay, so he would say that the true is the name of whatever proves itself to be good in the way of belief and good, um, and good for definite assignable reasons. So it has to prove itself to be good. Um, and you know, I hear, sometimes I hear, um, Confederate sympathizers or, or, um, um, the far right and the American far right say like, ultimately it was, um, that was the beginning of the end of freedom. 
on the continent or something like it ultimately mm. was not good mm -hmm. or it laid the groundwork for a desiccation of a unique freedom. Mm -hmm. um, so the, there are these like kind of pragmatic arguments, like even though there's a strong abolitionist principle and there's just a justice to the war and, and yeah, sure. You know, people with different skin colors should be free. Ultimately it wasn't true because it, it wasn't good. So they'll, they'll use, yeah. they'll position things in that way. Right. Yeah. That was, I mean, finally, <clears throat> that was Alan Bloom's uh, critique of, uh, of uh, the early professionalization of, of psychology and sociology. As he said, it was so pragmatic that it allowed uh, Southerners to say, well, we had a way of life like any other. And aren't we, aren't you supposed to be value neutral scientists and uh, pragmatic philosophers? Why are you judging us so harshly? Yeah. Yeah. What do you know about the good? What do you know about freedom? Yeah. Um, now, now, let me just go ahead. Give this to you. Um, this is, and this is James's. This would be James's. Uh, a lot hinges on this. Uh, this part of his thinking. So it's the belief is good, unless that belief, and then what is good, incidentally clashes with some other vital benefit. Mm -hmm. So he sets up like some sort of principled schema yeah. where like it can be good, but just know that these beliefs and their effect on the world are always interrelated mm -hmm. and that they're only good to the extent that they do not clash with a superior vital good. Right. How much of a <laughs> guardrail is that against sort of this relativism? And the, you know, the funny thing is it's, political it's, movements. it's either – no guardrail at all, or it's the ultimate guardrail, depending on how you define vital good. I mean, it becomes a semantic. This is this is why ultimately one hates philosophy. Is it becomes a semantic debate? What's the vital good? How do you measure the vitality of different goods? I don't know. I get some vitality supplements. <laughs> <laughs> Gorilla see mindset. What, see what sort of good comes out of that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, ultimately it's going to fall a little bit short as an argument. The pragmatic argument. Yeah. Maybe it's designed to fall short as an argument. Maybe the point is it can only – Well, here – The true is consummated in action. The true is consummated in action, but it. I think it has – I think it really belongs in, in the, the spiritual method mm -hmm. in the world. I think it has great, great – positive benefits and potentials for freedom in a spiritual um, method. I don't, in the political, you know, you're either, what is it, emperor of the sword or emperor of the spirit. You know, this dichotomy has been in the West for, since Rome, mm -hmm. like men of God and men of war, mm -hmm. strange affinities. Like that's a proper distinction. We should be thinking about that more than we do actually. But, um, if if we carry that into James, like this is, if you bring this into political, it becomes it's it's becomes more um, destruct potentially destructive. But in the world of the spirit, it's actually liberatory. Yeah, the so Lewis Manan's teacher was Richard Rorty, latter day pragmatist philosopher, and he has a famous book, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, in which he says. And this isn't satisfying as an argument either, but he says, we just need to separate the, the political from the personal. And he says, 
politically, we need, you know, Karl Marx and John Stuart Mill. And personally, we need Nietzsche and, and Heidegger. Uh, and these two streams don't ever need to cross. These two things don't ever need to go together. I don't know about that. I don't think that makes much sense to me. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense, sense to, to me, me at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> and in fact, like if, if you were to carry that, those categories, and if I were to carry those categories, like at the risk of sounding like a, I don't know, like a, like a Western traditionalist conservative, I would say that, you know, what I've found is that if, in those categories, like in the world of the spirit, there's equality. Mm -hmm. And in the world of politics, the world of the sword, there's inequality. Mm -hmm. And that they should meet. Yeah. But they should be experienced and like deliberated upon right. with those basic. And that gives us the best chance at a certain type of harmony and progress. Yeah. And, and the problem is how do you judge how do you judge an inadequate order except by some transcendental ideal that stands above it? You can't separate these things. No. I might be traducing Rorty's argument, by the way, but... Um, oh, you're saying I made an attempt to separate them? No, no he is. Oh, he, I yeah. think you and I agree that yeah. these things need to be in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see, I can see you as a political enemy. I can see you as someone worth competing for in a world of strife and limited resources and clashing rationalist and empiricist ideologies. But pragmatically, I guess, giving James some credit here, I think I'm pragmatic in my spirituality. Um, I mean, this is a, I'll get into that later, but um, at the same time, I can see you as like, we are, we are children of God. Mm -hmm. We are equals. Yeah. I'm not here to dominate you. Yeah. I'm here to reconcile and forgive and work with you. Yeah. And that's, um, that is good. And, and that is in my actions. That is actionable for me. But I recognize that maybe we want to, on a different level, that maybe we want to um, outcompete each other. Right. And theoretically, hopefully, we don't have to have a civil war because we can keep these two things in mind and we can have a controlled within the, as you use the metaphor, the guardrails of that, that we're all, however, literally want to take this children of God, even though we have different ideals and interests. Mm -hmm. And within that, we have a debate that doesn't spill into open violence. Right. So are we pragmatists at the end of this, this, this flurry? Well, let me end with we'll keep going <clears throat> in my end is my beginning <laughs> well no, i think we have we've come to a natural end which is in the metaphysical club menand talks about his four heroes um and they all had different fates uh charles sanders purse died in despair and didn't realize he'd be famous until later um judge holmes was, was a great supreme court justice john dewey who we haven't talked about really set the pattern for progressive education that goes on even into our time for better and for worse. Um, but one of the things that Menand points out is another context for pragmatism was, as I mentioned, the professionalization of the university. Ah, I was hoping that we'd talk about this. <laughs> and he says that basically what happens is the university becomes pragmatist in allowing each discipline to judge 
and govern itself by the procedures it deems best to generate the kinds of truths it's after. And so that gives rise to peer review, faculty governance, because the old model in America was that the university was a religious institution. And so everything you said in any department had to ultimately refer back to the glory of God. And this is part of the secularization of the university where you say, well, look, God is fine. You know, God's over here, but we're doing biology and we're doing sociology and we're doing philosophy. And each of these disciplines has its own inner process of legitimating the kind of discourse it's best suited to generate. And so that's why only the biologist can judge the results of other biologists. Mm -hmm. And he says that's a pragmatic idea that we're after. Each discipline is after a certain set of results. And so they become professionalized. And I think that's a good thing. I think that allowed for certain kinds of academic freedoms and freedoms of thought and speech that weren't allowable in thought uh, in, in the realm of thinking before. Uh, it, it reminds me that James talks about pragmatism as carrying on the Protestant Reformation, the liberation of the conscience um, from, mm -hmm. from, uh, from dogmatic institutions. But there is a cost to it as well. And the cost is that thought used to be produced by amateurs to a much higher degree than it is now. Um, people who usually, you know, this wasn't always great because they used to be aristocrats because you had to have enough money to just go out and uh, search the beach for crabs and think about what the differences between the meant or whatever, or, or in a completely different realm, enough money to sit on writing poetry or, or coming up with literary theories or whatever. And so professionalizing it opens it to meritocracy, but it also submits it to a very rule-bound order. It becomes a dogmatic institution of its own. Right. And I think we see that in the university today, which is arguably over-specialized, over-dogmatized. Um, and it leaves out... It leaves out the potential for innovations, which probably, I mean, sciences and the humanities both, but in the humanities, the potential for innovations that can't be verified by the procedures of like value yeah. already established. Yeah. So there's like like the flaneur or the madman. Yeah. Or the, um, and maybe they die and 70 years later they get read. Right. But like they're not, they're not able to, um, become verified within. Yeah. And, you know, and then and on the other side, you have the over-professionalization of like creative writing, the kind of, um, you know, the, the by the numbers short story ending in an epiphany written in very terse language, like where's the room for, for the visionary so in, how in much the workshop? Is, how much this stuff has to do with money? Oh, a lot. <laughs> Pragmatism? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. he keeps saying cash value. Cash value. Like it's an ideology for- um, Manan talks about the thing that was happening in America economically when pragmatism was created was the move from entrepreneurial capital to industrial monopoly capital. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that most businesses were kind of privately owned, family owned, and then you move over the course of the late 19th and early 20th century into publicly traded companies that are run by the shareholders who in some nominal way, have some kind of public interest. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're getting, to, I don't want to talk about the Great Reset or something, but, uh, but you know, this idea of the corporation as 
uh, a governing entity in our society. And the university becomes a kind of corporation here. And pragmatism becomes the legitimating ideology of these institutions that each have their own governing legitimacy without regard to some transcendental order. So if, it, if it's shared among universities, corporations, governments, if it's a way of measuring and operating, and it's a, it's a system of thinking that that um, synchronizes all of those those different institutions. Yeah, one might argue like they should be differentiated and mm-hmm. like diverse and how, but suddenly they're synchronized by a way of seeing value and taking action. Yeah, creates the conditions for well, <laughs> fascist possibly type of. Fascism, because I remember reading this Slavoj Žižek interview um, post Trump. You remember when Trump came out? I mean, Žižek came out and said, "Vote Trump." Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, these benchmarks of a personal history, <laughs> and and he came out, but you know, it was ironic and accelerate the intolerable conditions for revolution. Blah blah blah. Yeah, but he in that interview he said like a man like. The United States could never, in the short term, for, foreseeably descend into fascism mm-hmm. because the diversity of its institutional cultural fabric was too great. And in order for fascism to take hold in a nation, it needs to consolidate those fabrics. Yeah. And there's no way in which some a single man could do that in the United States yeah. because of its diversity. But then we're talking about pragmatism. We're talking about this synthesis of university, corporation, government. It's like maybe a single man couldn't do it. No. But could something as something like these various powerful institutions synchronized to the tune of like a pragmatic end? Is yeah. that enough? Yeah. To, to descend the United States into fascism. Well, and that's precisely what's happening. I mean, I Whoa. think that our, you know, our listeners might be familiar with Wesley Yang, the uh, Twitter personality and intellectual author of The Souls of Yellow Folk, which I've reviewed. And he talks about how we now, the United States is now controlled by what he calls a vertically integrated governing apparatus. And what he means by that is the media, the corporations, and the government and the universities are now all working in sync, particularly after the pandemic, to produce the same discourse that you can't say this, that's misinformation. Um, this is not allowed, this needs to be banned, this needs to be removed from Spotify, whatever. And it's all a coordinated effort because all of these are working toward the same pragmatic end. Do you think William James like showed up today? He'd be like, he'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. All I wanted was money, tools, uh, money, tools, God, and some good ass motherfucking art. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I mean William, William James. He'd be like whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, take a fucking holiday. <laughs> yeah, William World James Economic Forum would not it's got way <laughs> out of hand. I want money. I want burgers. I want tools. I want soda. Yeah, I want books. I want people to fuck. Yeah, I want. <laughs> I, want I want God. Yeah. I want you to do good God. I want you to do real God, real actions, you know, be nice to people. And I want good-ass motherfucking art like my brother Henry produces and like the modernists are about to pop off on. Yeah, there's a way in which William James would not be on the side of this messaging apparatus. What is with this? this These people, world. they think of ideas and then 
And then people use their ideas that become the exact opposite of what they thought. Yeah. We should talk about with the rent. Yeah. So let's let's end with this. Let's keep going. <laughs> I, I don't know how much I could put on the podcasting service. Um, so uh, let's let's end here. It, it, it's a it's a long quote. It's from Manan's book, and it ends my post on James. In 1899, a set of American activist intellectuals they found the Anti-Imperialist League. The context being the uh, the uh, Spanish American War. And that being one of the first moments where America really seemed to aggress toward other, well, I don't, I don't want to say the first, but if you discount Native American. John, imperialism doesn't mean you cross the ocean. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so fucked up. You have these people in your ear all the time and they're in, yeah. your, in your head saying, nascent, what about the Native Americans? Nascent, I know. Nascent empire. Yeah, okay. But anyway. Maybe the cruelest phase. <laughs> Right. So listen, I understand it wasn't the first, but it it seemed to mark a new phase where the the United States was seeking something like overseas possessions. It was starting to look something more like the British Empire. Oh, yeah. And so you get the Anti-Imperialist League, which William James joins. And he writes a letter in 1898 that Menand quotes. And the context of Menand's quote is he says, James doesn't quite fit into my story. Because pragmatism was a philosophy for social scientists, for policymakers, for reformers who were interested in some kind of pragmatic governance. And it, you know, and it did inspire fascism in some respects, as I talk about in my post as well. But he said James wasn't really like that. He said James, and I quote, James's philosophy was for misfits, mystics, and geniuses. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Easy to root for. So <laughs> he quotes this letter from James, and I'm, I want to read this paragraph. James says, I am against bigness and greatness in all their forms, and with the invisible molecular moral forces that work from individual to individual, stealing in through the crannies of the world like so many soft rootlets or like the capillary oozing of water, and yet rending the hardest monuments of man's pride if you give them time. The bigger the unit you deal with, the hollower, the more brutal, the more mendacious is the life displayed. So I am against all big organizations as such, national ones first and foremost, against all big successes and big results, and in favor of the eternal forces of truth, which always work in the individual in immediately unsuccessful way, underdogs always, till history comes after they are long dead and puts them on top. So, you know, with the quote, there's a biblical line behind mm -hmm. that, the first shall mm -hmm. be last. That sounds to me like a transcendental principle. Wonderful. But it sounds like a really good one. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I would say that, I mean, I would say that um, there's a type of libertarianism in that. Mm -hmm. There's a type of distrust of big um, centralized power. And my question would be, what would it take on an individual level in order for that to be realized. And, and a lot of these discussions of American writers and um, there are purposely, there are no solutions. It's not in our history to provide solutions at this large scale yeah, or to give ground at this large scale that it, it comes from inner development yeah. for better, for worse. And, and um, 
I see James as being someone who wants us to be happy and wants us to be thinking about what is good and wants us to be in a good humor and to be humanistic Yeah, in how we see each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a lot of things, it comes back to that idea that I, I think I, I might have quoted from Emerson earlier on this podcast about he talks about the gradual domestication of the idea of culture, which is like a self-cultivation where mm-hmm. they're probably in this way of viewing things, any solution on the largest scale will reinstitute the problem. Mm-hmm. And so all we can do is live in a way that somehow counteracts that and fulfills what we most want to make make ourselves or what we, we most mm-hmm. are. And here's one quote from Varieties of Religious Experience. Good humor is a f- philosophic state of mind. It seems to say to nature that we should take her no more seriously than she takes us. <laughs>